0: Well, good morning. We uh, had a wonderful time at the conference yesterday. For those of you who were able to a- attend, you know what I'm talking about. It was a sweet day. Um, if you were not able to attend and you would like to still hear uh, the teaching at the conference, those are going to be made available probably in the next next week or two. Um, so once those are posted online, uh, I'll send out an email so that if you would like to listen to uh, the teaching and see the conference, you're able to do so. But it really was a wonderful time uh, to see so many faces I'd never seen before. right? Just brothers and sisters from other churches, and we're all gathered here to hear um, good teaching. It was just wonderful. And uh, I am convinced and confident that Christ Church, outside of our four walls, was built up yesterday, uh, both in fellowship and in truth. So really a sweet time. And thank you to Jen and Bella and the E-Steps and the Wakelings. They, uh, without being asked, just kept things moving, uh, setting stuff up, taking stuff down. They were really the... Uh, the unsung heroes of yesterday. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for um, being so hospitable and helping us to host that conference. We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, if you would. Matthew chapter 15 is where we'll be at this morning as we continue through the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 15. Have you ever met somebody who claims to be morally perfect? I'm not talking about somebody who acts like they're morally perfect. Somebody who out loud says, I'm, I'm perfect. You, you could probably more easily convince me that Sasquatch exists than a morally perfect person exists. Everybody I've ever asked, uh, including myself, is, is fairly quick to admit uh, we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. right? We've all done bad things in our lives. Maybe we have some dysfunctional habits. We, we all know human beings are universally flawed, right? We're all fairly agreed on that. But human beings are more than just flawed, but in some cases, evil. Evil. The greatest evil done on earth is not done by animals or by plants. It's done by human beings. We see the news headlines that describe heinous and evil acts committed by one person against another. It seems that most people are fairly open to the idea there's something wrong with humans, maybe, maybe on a, a general social level, or maybe individually, maybe both. In fact, the, the negative state of man is foundational to the Christian faith and the teaching of Scripture. It's, it's really vital to understanding the gospel itself. There's something wrong with us. We, we know this. And when we're honest, we know we're not just broken, we're bad. That we can do things that we are ashamed of. We have thoughts we don't want that we would never want other people to know about. We say things we regret later that haunt us throughout our lives. We do things that hurt other people that we can't take back. We desire things we know we shouldn't. Where does all this come from? Why are we like this? What is the ultimate source of our moral problems? Of, of, our, of our weaknesses and failures? Some people claim we're products of our environment. Other people claim that, that we end up being who we are because of our upbringing. Uh, yet others argue that society makes people who they are. Uh, some go so far to blame Are problematic uh, problematic behaviors on nutrition, right? I gave my kids too much sugar. I've said that out loud. They must be having too much sugar. Why are they acting like this? You know? (laughs) Blame it on nutrition. And, And while these things can be influential factors in our thoughts and behaviors, none of them ultimately make us who we are. None of these explanations actually get to the root cause of our sin. And in fact, by focusing on external explanations for our moral problems, we will inevitably miss the real explanation for why we are the way we are, for sin. This was the error of the Pharisees. And in this morning's text, Jesus reveals that the ultimate source of our problems is us. And this sobering reality points to our need for help outside of us, for our need a Savior who is not us. Look at verse 10 with me as we read our text. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Would you pray with me as we come to the Word of God? Our Lord and our God, we humbly come to Your Word today. And Lord, as we hear the teaching of Jesus, I ask that You would help us to submit ourselves to it. Lord Jesus' words here Uh, They do not flatter us, but they cut right to the heart of who we are. They reveal the source of our sin and our problems. And Father, if, if we're honest, at times we don't want to acknowledge that. We don't want to see it. But Lord, it's necessary that we do. And so I ask, Lord, that as we hear your word today, that by your Spirit you would pull back the layers of our own hearts. That you would... Pull back the pride that we may have. That you would help us to understand the fallen human condition rightly. In order that we would understand the need for a perfect Savior. Lord, help me to proclaim your word helpfully and faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, we saw Jesus refute the Pharisees regarding the status of, that their oral tradition, specifically, you know, in this example, uh, hand-washing, should have in relation to Scripture. The Pharisees believed that their tradition was practically equal to Scripture, but what ended up happening was that they would uh, break the commands of God in order to preserve their tradition. We saw that with the the Korban rule. There's another related error that the Pharisees were making that, that actually comes out of this whole exchange With the Pharisees, it's continuing on through chapter 15 here. Um, This error is regarding the source of man's moral corruption. The discussion from last week continues in this morning's text, though in a different direction. As we look at verse 10, it seems that the crowd, who's often a background character in Matthew's gospel, they've witnessed this entire exchange. All of a sudden, Jesus calls the people to him. It seems that they've been there watching and listening They've seen and heard what Jesus has said to the Pharisees, and and Jesus now calls them to gather around him because he has something he wants to teach them. And he instructs them to hear and understand. He's about to explain to them this fundamental error of the Pharisees, this error that has to do with the source of man's defilement. So in verse 11, Jesus begins to teach them, and he tells the crowd, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Now, if you remember from last week, the Pharisees believed that that, uh, eating certain foods would defile a person or that eating with unwashed hands could contaminate the food and make it unclean and that would in turn make the person who ate it unclean. And that a large part of this, of course, was was from contact with with Gentiles. Uh, But Jesus says that's not true. He says that's not true. He, He says, according to Jesus, things going into a person don't defile them. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now food's the specific example here and and a lot of time and ink was dedicated to that in the rabbinic culture. But Jesus' teaching here really extends beyond just food going into us as we'll see in a few verses. But if you've read the Old Testament, Jesus' statement here probably is raising some questions. and, And rightly so. What about the Old Testament purity laws? What about uh, the regulations that Moses delivered to the people of Israel about external things defiling a person. Touching a dead body, for example, would make you unclean. Being in a, a house that had mold in it would make you unclean. Skin diseases would make you unclean. Right? These were laws that God gave to the people of Israel. Eating certain foods would make you unclean. Right? These were all things that God said. A large part of these were not invented by the Pharisees. God actually gave many of these purity laws to the people of Israel. So how does Jesus' statement here fit with that? How does it fit with that? We need to understand a couple things here. First, it's helpful to to realize that um, the purity laws given to Israel were for a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose. And when we look at God's law in the Torah, we, we kind of, see these three main categories. We see God's moral law, which is generally represented by the Ten Commandments. These are things that apply to all people in all places at all times, right? Like no matter where you are on earth or, or what time you live, it's wrong to commit adultery. That's true for any people anywhere. It's the moral law. There's also the civil law. Now these things uh, were laws given to Israel to help them live and exist as a theocratic nation. These were laws given for them that they might have a successful society. Then there's the third category, which are the ceremonial laws. These were the unique ways that God commanded Israel to worship Him. He didn't give these to any other nation, but just to the nation of Israel. When it comes to food laws, these fall under the ceremonial laws. They're not part of the moral law or even the civil law, but the ceremonial law. Both the civil and ceremonial have passed away. With Christ. Now, these regulations were given to Israel temporarily as a way to keep them distinct from the pagan nations, so that the Messiah would be born from their midst. And these regulations for, for food and other purity laws reveal that God is holy. Now, but they focus on ritual impurity, not on moral impurity. They focus on ritual impurity, not on moral impurity. And they are not universal laws for for all people. It's important to realize that right off the bat. Second, Jesus' words here about external things not defiling a person mark a significant turning point in redemptive history. Jesus' words here reveal that the Mosaic food and purity laws, which were part of the Old Covenant, were ultimately going to pass away as the New Covenant was approaching. If you put your finger in Matthew and turn over to Mark chapter 7, we see uh, something of a shocking statement Mark chapter 7. This is Mark's uh, same account of of this event. This is Mark's version of Jesus' teaching here. And we see Mark add a commentary on Jesus' teaching in verse 19. And Mark's commentary reads this. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus is declaring all foods clean here. That's incredibly significant. That's incredibly significant. Now Jesus is not abolishing the moral law. He's not getting rid of the Ten Commandments. Right? He's not saying those things don't matter anymore. But he is declaring all foods clean. In other words, Jesus is demonstrating that the ritual purity laws of the Old Covenant are merely the shadow. That they had a temporary purpose, but now that the substance, the new covenant, had arrived, those things were passing away. Hebrews 8.13 talks about that which is obsolete passes away. So the civil and ceremonial laws are are no longer in force. They they begin to fade out. And so really there's there's no conflict between Jesus' teaching and the Old Testament ceremonial laws because Jesus says those things are passing away. Right? They're not in conflict because they're no longer in force under the New Covenant. And really, this is an amazing thing for a Jewish man to declare. Yeah, all foods are clean. That's almost unthinkable. The only person who could make such a declaration would be God. Now, the Pharisees weren't completely wrong about unclean foods being prohibited in one sense. After all, they had... Precedent in the old covenant law. But that, that's not the main problem Jesus is going after here. Right? Jesus' main concern is not what people are and are not eating. The main problem that Jesus was addressing even, even prior to this is that the Pharisees had made external uncleanness the main focus. Which ends up making it the entire focus. If you do the right things on the outside, you'll be fine with God. On the inside, as long as you're ritually pure, you'll be okay. And, and, and that's the main idea that Jesus is attacking here. And when you think about it, th- this approach of focusing on external acts and behaviors, that's the easy road. That's the easy road. You're wondering, how could following all those rules and regulations be easy? How could you remember them all? Well, here's what I mean. Any religion that's primarily focused on the outside gives its followers a false sense of control. After all, anybody can go to Mass. You just get in your car and go there. Anybody can abstain from caffeine, like the LDS do. Anyone can only eat certain foods and wash their hands before they eat, like the Pharisees. Anybody can do that, You don't need God's help. You don't need the Spirit's enablement to do these things. And even the most wicked of people can do these external things. That's easy. That's easy. Focusing on external rules and regulations only leads to man trusting in himself and his own works of of so-called righteousness. That's what Jesus is going after here. This is a false righteousness that's being promoted. When the Pharisees, you know, if you recall, they're, they're saying, why are your disciples eating with unwashed hands? That's unrighteous. That's a transgression. Now for the Pharisees, Jesus' statement here that what goes into a man doesn't defile him, uh, that would have been shocking. It would have been shocking. They would have seen it as a dangerous breach of tradition and law. And as we see in verse 12 of, of Matthew 15, Jesus' disciples come to him. They inform him, this statement has offended the Pharisees. Maybe the disciples think Jesus cares about the opinion of the Pharisees. Maybe they wonder, does he realize what he's done? Uh, Maybe they they want to tell Jesus because they think Jesus is going to throw down with the Pharisees again and they they want to see some action. Um, And so does Jesus care about the opinion of the Pharisees? Well, ultimately, no. Ultimately, no. His his response to the disciples isn't one of of panic or worry. What have I done? You know, I've I've, I've accepted religious leaders. No, instead, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees publicly. And he uses two parables to do so. Now first, in verse 13, Jesus compares the Pharisees to plants. He says, Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Now, Jesus is suggesting here that some of the Pharisees are plants the Father hasn't planted, right? It's, it's very difficult to kind of paint the entire pharisaical movement with one stroke, but the ones we see engaging with Jesus here are the ones he's, he's talking about. These are not plants that God, his Father, has, has planted. God has not approved or affirmed their ministry, their use of the law, their tradition, their character, their, their teaching. Um, it seems that Jesus is really saying here, they do not truly serve God. They're very religious, but they are not plants that the Father has planted. Throughout history, there's been many such religious figures that claim to be pious, holy, anointed, uh, favored, but their teaching and character proves otherwise. And the Pharisees, Jesus says, will be dealt with. God will pull them up by the roots, removing them and and throwing them aside. And God is not with them. That's the implication. God is actually against them as they break his commands for the sake of their tradition. Um, It's like the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? Pulling out what should not be there. And notice this is not just an evaluation of the Pharisees, but it's also a warning to the crowds. It's also a warning to the crowds. If you follow these teachers, you follow the Pharisees who only focus on the externals, you too will be rooted up with them. Friends, be careful of the teachers you listen to, lest you be caught up with them and under the same judgment. In verse 14, we see the second parable where Jesus describes the Pharisees as blind guides, which is almost an oxymoron, right? Blind guides. Guides are supposed to see. They're supposed to see the way, to know the way forward. They're they're supposed to lead you from one place to another safely and successfully. But the Pharisees, according to Jesus, are blind. They're blind to God's actual will and purpose for Israel and for the purpose and use of God's law. They're as we see in our text today, blind to the fundamental problem of humanity. Viewing it primarily as external. Now a blind guide, of course, cannot lead the way accurately. A blind guide is probably overly confident and self-deceived, right? Thinking they're a good guide, yeah, I can do this, no problem, uh, when they're not. A blind guide ultimately will lead others into danger, into a pit, like Jesus says. And, and here, too, Jesus warns those who would follow the pharisees saying that they too would be blind those who listen to and agree with the pharisees according to jesus in both these parables will meet the same destruction and judgment as the pharisees again be careful who you follow but the disciples apparently still don't get it they still don't quite understand what's going on here Um, And we see Peter in verse 15 asking Jesus, explain the parables to us. He's really speaking for the group here. They don't understand. They don't understand. They don't quite grasp what Jesus is teaching. And we can have a little sympathy for Peter, right? After all, you know, think about it. He's, He's probably between 20 and 30 years old. This is what he's grown up with. This is what he's ever known. It must have been somewhat difficult for Peter in a natural sense to fully grasp everything Jesus was saying because this is a paradigm shift for Peter right Peter was was part of the rabbinic tradition right that's what he would have known uh, for his entire life he would have sat under that teaching and under the Pharisees as, as religious authority now granted he's eating with unwashed hands and he's picking grain on the Sabbath so Clearly, he's having some, some sort of mind shift there. But he still doesn't quite get it. His lack of understanding, maybe his human ignorance, maybe the culture he grew up in, we can't be too hard on Peter here. And Jesus, in answering Peter, explains more about the error of externalism, which we've seen in the first five verses. And he helps Peter and the crowds see that man's ultimate problem is not outside of himself, but inside of himself. That's our our second point, the truth of internal corruption, verses 16 through 20. Now Jesus, upon hearing Peter's question, he, he responds a little incredulously. He says, are you also still without understanding? I think he's comparing Peter to the Pharisees here. He's like, they don't get it. You still don't get it either? You've been with me for at least all this time. You've heard, Mike, you don't get it? This really reveals that they have so much to learn. And Jesus' response here, we can't see it in the English, but it's actually in the plural in the Greek. He's not talking just to Peter, but to all the disciples who apparently have not voiced their confusion, but who are still confused. But Jesus still takes time to explain to them the meaning of his teaching. In verse 17, he deals with the effect of external factors. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, and is expelled. Now, Jesus focuses on food here. Again, that's kind of the context of the argument. But this can apply to other things outside of us as well. And Jesus points out that whatever goes into the mouth, right, we're talking about food, goes down into the stomach. It's digested. It's expelled in the normal biological way. And there's two things to note about what Jesus tells us here. First, the food that goes into a person's stomach doesn't remain there, it doesn't stay there, continuing to defile them in some way, but it passes through their body and it's gone doesn't remain with them, and it has no effect in that sense. Second, and and I think more importantly, notice that the food passes into the stomach, not the heart. The stomach is not the central aspect of who we are. I mean, I guess it is like physically, but, you know, it's not the internal part of who we are. It's not the inner man. It's not the control center of a person. So the food goes into the stomach. Therefore, eating with unwashed hands or eating different kinds of food doesn't make a person spiritually defiled. It doesn't affect their moral state because it doesn't go to their heart. It just goes into their stomach and then it's gone. But in verse 18, Jesus really gets down to the heart of the matter. um, Pun intended. Now the focus shifts to what comes out of the mouth. Or in the more general wording of Mark's account, what comes out of a person. It's not what goes into a person that defiles it, but what comes out, right? Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth, or really generally what comes out of us, originates in a deeper, more fundamental place, which is the heart. The heart. That's what Jesus says in verse 18. The things that come from the heart are what defile a person. Now, Jesus is speaking of a much deeper and much different kind of defilement than the Pharisees are. They're focused on ritual impurity, on external uncleanness. But that's not the biggest problem man has, Jesus says. The biggest problem is the defilement of the heart, the defilement that's already in us. Now, now when we think of the heart, as modern people, we think of emotions, right? And love and things like that. But biblically, The heart is much more than that. You have a body, of course. And in the biblical view, you you have this material component of yourself, your body. And you have the non-material component of who you are. That's the heart. That's a lot of who you are, isn't it? Biblically, the heart is where our desires come from, our thoughts come from, our plans, our words, our will, our affections. Proverbs 4.23 sums it up well. When it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's pretty comprehensive. So that's the heart, the internal part of who we are. And that, Jesus says, is the source of our defilement. It's not the external uncleanness that legalism focuses on. It's the radically corrupt and sinful heart that exists in each one of us. That's what estranges us. From God, not what's outside of us, but what is inside of us. Think about how radically different that is from the Pharisees' teaching for a moment. That's polar opposite. Instead of man being the source of his own righteousness, Jesus says, "Man is the source of his own defilement." Now, now you might be thinking, well, my heart can't really be that bad, right? You know, I, I have a decent heart. Sure, I make some mistakes, right? But overall, I think I'm a good person. But, but Jesus isn't done. And in verse 19, he gives us a list of things that flow forth from the heart. Evil thoughts. right? The wicked and evil thoughts and desires that we have that are internal but often lead to external sin. We've all had evil thoughts. We've all had evil thoughts. Murder flows from the heart. And, and of course, this is talking about homicide, the unjust killing of other human beings. But as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, hatred and anger. Who among us has not been sinfully angry? From the heart flows adultery, Jesus says. Again, the desire and action of illicit sexual relationships that violate the covenant of marriage. Maybe that's done in the body. But, again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that uh, lust actually breaks that commandment as well. Flows from the heart. Sexual immorality, from the heart flows the action or the desire for sexual deviation from God's design for sex in a marriage between one man and one woman. That includes masturbation, pornography, fornication, homosexuality. All of that flows from the heart. Theft, the coveting and taking of things that belong to others, that flows from the heart. A false witness, lies told in order to better or to preserve ourselves, that flows out of the heart. Slander, sinful words spoken about another person. We're probably guilty of all of these in some way, shape, or form. And this list of seven things is not exhaustive either. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus adds seven more. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, and foolishness. Jesus is describing all of our hearts without exception. None of us can stand here before God and say, none of those things have ever proceeded from my heart, not once in my entire life. If so, Sasquatch is real. (laughs) The point, though, is that the source, and we really can't miss this. This is really, 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 really key. It's really uncomfortable, but it's really, Really vital for us to understand that the source of our sinfulness, our wrong behaviors, is our heart. It's our heart. It's us. And notice, too, when we look at this list, we kind of see a mirror of the second table of the Ten Commandments, the second six commandments, don't we? The things we do, say, think, or feel that break God's law, that all flows out of our heart. That's our greatest problem, our sinful hearts. That is your greatest problem, your sinful heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Which, by the way, means you should not follow your heart. You should not do that. Why would you follow the leading source of your sin? But don't do it. Don't do it. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six says, Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Don't, don't follow your heart. You cannot trust it. James 1, 14-15 teaches us the same vital truth that Jesus does here. that, That each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Where does that come from? The heart. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the source of our sin, friends, and our wickedness, and the things inside us that we don't like to think about and maybe are in denial about, it's our heart. It's our heart. And we have to ask, are, are, are we willing to accept Jesus' teaching about our own hearts here? Are we willing to take what he says at face value? Right? Are you willing to agree with Jesus, yeah, my, my heart is wicked, it's deceitful, it is the source of my sin and my problems, or does that offend your pride? Does that offend your pride? If it offends your pride, there's the heart at work yet again. Now, do other things affect us? Do things outside of our heart affect us? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do external things influence us or teach us or train us? Yeah. We'd be foolish to say no, right? If a child grows up with a father who's a criminal, are they going to be trained in ungodliness and in theft by his example? Probably, right? That could happen. If you expose yourself to sexually explicit contest, a content, will it train you for lust? Yes, it will. Can alcohol or drugs result in you doing dumb or dangerous stuff? Yes. But none of these things place sinfulness inside of your heart. None of these things that are outside of us put sin inside of us. They merely fuel and draw out The depravity that's already there. They just draw out what's already inside. Jesus is very clear. All of these things proceed from the heart alone. Here's the bottom line. What is outside of us cannot place sin inside of us. What is outside of us cannot inherently make us more sinful than we already are. Ultimately, our thoughts, our deeds, our actions proceed from our own hearts. And and what does this mean for us? This is actually significant. When we understand this, this changes the way we relate to God. It changes the way we relate to other people. It changes our relationships. It changes how we walk with Christ daily. This simple truth, hard to accept, but biblically true. Because what this means is we must take 100% responsibility for our actions. We must take 100% responsibility for our words, our thoughts, our desires, our sin. We have to because nobody else is to blame. We can't uh, blame our upbringing for our sin. We can't blame society for our sin. We can't blame psychiatric labels for our sin or our environment for our sin or our nutrition for our sin. Uh, To place the responsibility on these things is essentially to be like the Pharisees and ignore the ultimate cause and source of our sinfulness and defilement and problems. And here's how this affects our relationships. Realizing we need to take 100% responsibility. It affects our relationship with God because when we sin against Him, we are responsible to confess that sin to Him, and to repent of it. If other people or outside things are causing us to sin, how can we repent of that? It's not our fault. But that's not what Jesus says. And when we actually walk in genuine repentance before God, we will walk closer with Him than ever before. This affects our relationships with other people. right? How many of us, don't raise your hand, but The words that have come out of our lips, you made me do that. You made me so mad. We've all said or thought things like that, right? Well, yeah, I was mad, but they did this to me, right? Or yeah, okay, yeah, I'm really covetous of what they have, but I work so hard and they just had that handed to them, right? We're, We're basically blaming the other people for our sins. But when we take 100% responsibility, which is very, very, very humbling, it's very hard to do, but it's necessary. And when we do that, we, we stop saying, you made me so mad, and we say, I'm sorry, I was sinfully angry, and I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. Will you forgive me? That heals a relationship instead of pushing it further and further apart. Taking 100% responsibility for our sin, which is the necessary implication of what Jesus is teaching us, transforms our relationships. It is not easy. It is humbling. It is hard. And sometimes we're not going to want to do it. And it's much easier to justify our sin and blame others than owning it. But before God, we have no other choice. And there is no other way to blessing. Our heart, Jesus says, is the ultimate source of our defilement. And this presents a major problem. Presents a major problem. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's very easy to deal with the external things. You just need to do some careful rule following. You'll be okay. Avoid certain things. Avoid certain people. You're in good shape. But when the defilement is rooted in your own heart, when the activity of, Your heart, your inner life, is what's actively directing your sin. How do you fix that? How do you fix that? You can't rule follow your heart into being a good heart. It doesn't work like that. How how can you constantly purify yourself? Or how can you purify yourself when your heart is the fountain of sin within you? And the answer is simple. You can't. You can't do it. You cannot change that part of you. Can you modify your behavior? Yes. People do that all the time. But you cannot touch your heart. You can't do it. You are the problem. You can't be the solution. Jesus' teaching here reveals that we need a solution that is outside of us. We need someone else to save us from the defilement of our sin. We need someone else to transform the heart within us. This is a major difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. All the other religions in the world put the burden on you. You need to do these things to be right with God. You need to do these things in order to reach enlightenment. You need to do these things to enter paradise. You, 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 you. And one of two things happens there. You get a false sense of righteousness because you're doing all these things and following all the rules. Or you get this sense of despair. How could I ever do that? The problem is, we are the problem, not the solution. But the central message of Christianity is not do more, be better, improve yourself. The central message of Christianity, the starting place for us, is you can't do it. We, we don't get anywhere in the gospel unless we start there. You can't do it. You need someone to rescue you from your own sinfulness and the judgment that your sin is bringing upon you. And, and that rescuer is not going to be you. And that's what the gospel is. That's good news. Right? Think about a man who's stuck in the middle of the ocean. Right? And He's been paddling for days and days and days and he's only moved about a mile closer to the shore that's 300 miles away. And a Coast Guard helicopter flies over and says, you can do it, keep going, keep paddling. Is that good news to that man? It's not. But when the Coast Guard chopper comes down and says, we're going to get you up, we're going to get you out of here. Is that good news to that man? Yes, it is. And that's what the gospel is. Good news that someone has, in fact, come to save you. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners who cannot save themselves. The gospel message is that you can't obey God's law because your heart's full of sin. That's not good news. But it leads to good news. That Jesus, whose heart is without sin and is perfectly pure and good, whose, whose, whose heart never produced any of these things we've read about today, that he comes to obey God's law and has done it successfully in your place to die the death that you and I deserve for our sin. That's how we can be forgiven. That there's a great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness, and we just receive that by faith. That's what we call justification, right? We are are declared righteous by God by faith in Christ. Faith just receives. Faith doesn't work. Faith just receives the gift of God. We can't do it, but Jesus has done it for us. That's good news. But this raises a question, too how can a corrupted and sinful heart believe? Why would it ever? Well, before we can believe, God gives His people new hearts. Hearts that are inclined towards Him, that are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to obey Him. New hearts that have good desires. Hearts that are spiritually alive. Now, we cannot change our own hearts, but God in the New Covenant says that He actually will do this for us. Now, if you're like me, and you're living, breathing, and and, and thinking, right? You hear that and you go, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I know I have faith, but... I know I still have evil thoughts sometimes. I know I do evil things sometimes. And I find myself struggling with my sinful heart. So how do I reconcile those two things? God's given me a new heart, but I still struggle with sin. How does that work? Well, it's true. There is still sin that dwells in us, in our flesh. And it will be a battle until the day we die. But here's what God does give us through a new heart. He doesn't take away that remaining sin all at once. But He gives us a new heart and He fills it with His Spirit and He gives us His Word and we are enabled by His grace to fight that battle. Before we had that heart, we were enslaved to sin. We weren't fighting. But as Christians, we may now fight and God gives us the resources we need through our union with Christ to resist the sinful temptations and inclinations that rise up from within us. Do they still rise up? Yes, but God gives us what we need to resist them and pursue righteousness instead, to obey Christ. And one day, as we read from Revelation 21, God's work will be completed in you. And there will no longer be that struggle with sin. It will be completely purified. But apart from Christ, anyone who's apart from Christ will remain enslaved to their sinful heart. And God will hold you accountable for what comes out of it. Even if it never makes it past the door of your lips. See, we can't fool God with attempts to be a better person on the outside, right? He sees down to the deepest, darkest corners of our heart. But friends, in Christ, God provides forgiveness for those external and internal sins. And not only that, but he actually changes your heart by his grace. That you'd be transformed from the inside out. The path to true righteousness doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. So friend, come to Christ. Believe in Him. Have your sins forgiven and your heart transformed. I love Titus chapter 3 and I think it's a great way to to close. It just paints this wonderful picture of who we once were and what our hearts once were, but the redemption we've received in Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is that not good news, friends? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we um, are humbled before you as we hear about the state of the human heart, how it produces nothing truly good, but that which is dishonoring, that which breaks your law. Father, we pray you would help us to come to grips, whether whether we are unbelievers or if we've been believers for a long time. Father, help us to come to grips with the teaching of Jesus. That our hearts are the source of our sin. And Father, we pray that in light of that, you would help us to humble ourselves, to take responsibility for our sin before you and repentance and before others and reconciliation. That we might enjoy the blessing that comes with, with those things, Lord. For while it's hard, to acknowledge the persistent weight of our sinfulness, Lord, that remains in us. When we consider it from your perspective, Lord, it points us to Christ. And we see that we have a sweet refuge to flee to in Him. And so, Lord, as we consider the state of our own hearts before you today, we, we ask for your help to be honest, that you'd pull back the layers of our hearts. But Father, we pray as well that We would not dwell on that, but that what we see in us would drive us to Christ, the fountain of life. Lord, we ask all of this in his name. Amen.